Happy Easter, everybody. I'm so glad that you joined us today. And uh, I thought that our time of worship was just amazing today. And um, I'm really grateful to our entire team for doing another great job this weekend. And a special thanks to Haven and Jenna Claire and Amanda for that amazing song. Uh, the truth is, I'd, I'd like to have them do it again. It was great. Um, I think it's important for all of you to know during this crazy time of COVID-19, which I'll speak to some in a few moments, that uh, those of us who are here uh, doing what's necessary to put on this live stream service are following the uh, strictest safety protocols possible. You should know that unless somebody's actually on stage and there's just a very small group of people here who are making all this happen, unless somebody's actually on stage performing or in my case speaking, we're wearing masks and so on. I think it's important for you to know that we're taking this very seriously while at the same time taking our responsibility and privilege to share the good news about Jesus on Resurrection Day with you. So um, I'm glad that you joined us today. I want to begin my talk on this Easter by telling you why I got angry at a place called the Church of the Rooster. This past February, Sharon and I hosted a group for a tour of the Holy Land. It was a wonderful group and a wonderful tour. And on the last day of the tour, we visited a famous site called the Church of St. Peter in Gallicantu. This church takes its name from the Latin word Gallicatur, which loosely translated means the rooster's crow. This church was built on the site of what many archaeologists believe was the palace of, the, of Caiaphas, the high priest. You remember Caiaphas, I'm sure. Caiaphas was the high priest who had Jesus arrested and then tried him before the Sanhedrin in his palace. There's a dreadful dungeon underneath this church where it's believed that Jesus was held on the evening of his trial before being turned over to the Roman governor Pilate. The reason that this church is called the Church of the Rooster is because the courtyard of the palace of Caiaphas is where Simon Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed twice. Affixed to the roof of this church is a golden rooster. This rooster is placed above a black cross. And in the courtyard is a very dramatic sculpture depicting Peter denying Jesus to a young woman with a Roman soldier standing in the background. They are warming themselves around a fire of burning coals, a charcoal fire. So why did I get angry at the church of the rooster? It's this. It ticks me off that this site memorializes the greatest failure in Simon Peter's life. There's a rest of the story to this story. Late on the night before his crucifixion, as the Last Supper ended and before the fateful events of Gethsemane, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples. He said, you will all fall away, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, 
Before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Jesus told his disciples that they would forsake him when he was tried and crucified. He told Peter specifically that he would deny him. But he also said, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus was saying, we're all about to go through some horrendous things. I'm about to suffer terribly, and I'm about to die, and then I'm going to go to hell and back, and you're going to fail me. Peter, especially you, you're going to fail me. Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. But, but, when I am risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee, and I will meet you there. Galilee was home for Peter and the other disciples. Jesus was telling Peter and these other guys that they were going to suffer through some awful things, but that he would meet them on the other side of their suffering. That when they all got through this, he would be home waiting for them. He implied that the suffering he was about to experience, and in their own way, they were about to experience as well. He implied that this suffering would be redemptive because the crucifixion and burial was not the end and their betrayal and denial was not the end either why well Easter was coming and because Easter was coming his dying was actually a new beginning Their failure would be redeemed. The resurrected Jesus was going to meet the disciples on the other side of their suffering. And of course, he did. He did meet all of them in Galilee after his resurrection. And he had a special encounter with Peter on the shore of Galilee where Peter was reconciled to Jesus and called to a new level of mission and destiny fulfillment. So, Do you see why I'm angry at this idea of a church called the Church of the Rooster? Why memorialize failure? Why memorialize just suffering and death? Why memorialize the worst moment in time? Because when you understand Easter, you always know there's a rest of the story. You know that Jesus takes us through our suffering and somehow redeems our suffering, and that he has plans for us beyond our suffering. When you think of Simon Peter, do you think of a rooster? Do you think of failure? I doubt it. Why? Because Jesus, in fact, did meet Peter in Galilee, and after he met him there, Peter literally helped change the trajectory of human history. He is revered as one of the greatest men who ever lived. We call him the Apostle Peter. So I think we should change the name of that church, at least for Easter Sunday. I think we should call it something else. Uh, You can choose your own name. I have several suggestions. Maybe we should change the name of the Church of the Rooster, memorializing the failure of Simon Peter to something 
with a post-resurrection reality. Maybe we should call it the Church of the Reconciliation because Peter and Jesus did reconcile. Or the Church of Redemptive Suffering. Or the Church of the Power of the Resurrection. Or the Church of the Great Apostle. Or the Church of the God who saves us from our worst. Or the Church of God who turns failure into victory. Or the Church that reminds us that Easter is coming. I think you get the point. So, it's important to grieve our losses, to, to mark the moment of our failure and difficulty and challenge and suffering, but to only do that as long as we remember that there's victory on the other side. I'll say it again, it's important that we do grieve our losses as long as we remember that there's victory on the other side. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, that in every human story, as in divine history, there are two catastrophes. The first is utter ruin, the catastrophe of disintegration and undoing, the end of life as we know it, light extinguished in death's dark triumph, the crucifixion. The second, Lewis said, is the good catastrophe. The reintegrating and remaking, new hope rising out of the ashes, the good that would not otherwise be, the resurrection. See, I think it's important that we always know as we're going through suffering that somehow, because of God's grace and the power of the resurrection, there will be a good on the other side that would not otherwise be. I know it sounds strange to use the term good catastrophe. It sounds oxymoronic. Well, that's what C.S. Lewis said, one of the great minds of recent history. C.S. Lewis was making the point that there would never have been a resurrection, a good catastrophe, if there had not been a cross, a bad catastrophe. Bad catastrophe led to what Lewis called a good catastrophe. See, Easter is a good catastrophe. Among other things, Easter reminds us that victory is inevitable, even over the very worst that life can throw at us. The resurrection of Jesus teaches us that we will triumph even over death. The Apostle Paul taught us that Jesus was the first fruits of everyone who would be raised from the dead. He wrote to the Corinthians, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's saying Jesus is the first of many of us who are going to be raised from the dead. That because Jesus was raised from the dead, we should expect resurrection too. The idea is that the resurrection of Jesus is evidence that all of us who believe in him will be raised as well. He went first, all of us will follow. So the very worst, literally, the very worst life can throw at us. Death itself is ultimately turned into victory because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Jesus had to die in order to be resurrected. There was something catastrophically bad that happened in order for there to be the possibility of something as catastrophically good as the resurrection happening. Look, 
We simply must remember that when it appears that we're in the worst of times, we're just getting ready for resurrection. Easter is coming. We are we, we know that Easter is coming because Easter already came. Again, the point is that the resurrection of Jesus has him going first in the defeat of the very worst life can offer. Because Easter came, we can believe for future resurrections. Now, I'm not just talking about the fact that those of us who believe in Jesus will be raised from the dead in the future to live eternally uh, the life that is to come. I'm also uh, extrapolating back from that bigger picture and extrapolating forward from the past resurrection this, this idea that we can expect that as we go through the worst of times that Easter is coming, that victory is inevitable in our lives, that somehow or another bad catastrophes can be redemptive that there's good on the other side that would never have happened if it hadn't have been for the bad thing. So, in recent days, watching all of the news and hearing reports from people I love about how COVID-19 is affecting our world and, and the world immediately around us, I've been thinking about this principle. We have to believe that God is working for our good even though all that we see is apparently bad. We have to believe that there is good somehow on the other side of this truly catastrophic plague. Good that would never have happened if not for the bad. Not that God causes suffering because He doesn't, but He does redeem it. He is with us in our suffering But even more, he will go ahead of us and meet us on the other side. In our time of suffering, we absolutely must not forget that resurrection is coming because Easter actually did come some 2,000 years ago. Listen, we're not in a theoretical time of suffering. There are a lot of times I've taught about suffering, but I've done it during a time when it it was more, you know, Uh, theoretical or something that someone else had experienced or was experiencing. Um, The the fact is that what we're experiencing now is is terribly real, Um, especially here in North Jersey and here in the New York City metropolitan area. By now, we all know people who've been infected by COVID-19, and um, many of us now know someone who's passed away, and some of us have had very dear loved ones who, who have passed away as a result of this terrible pandemic. Um, this, this brings indescribable suffering and loss. And, and then there are the lesser losses, but losses nonetheless. Uh, I'm sure I speak to some today who've lost their job in the last few weeks or you're concerned about losing your job or your finances have been impacted in some dramatic way or 
or you're, you're anxious. I think most of us feel, if we're honest, some level of anxiety. Though Jesus helps us with our anxiety, we begin by feeling the thing he needs to help us with. We feel some level of anxiety about what's next, what does the future hold. Some of you are, 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 are just, you're, you're, you're suffering loneliness and uh, maybe even intense discouragement during this time. This is, this is real. What we're, what we're suffering through right now is real. But our suffering will not be the final story about, told about COVID-19. Somehow, there will be a story of the good that wouldn't have happened if we wouldn't have suffered through a terribly bad thing. It doesn't mean that the suffering that we experience isn't real, and it doesn't mean that the suffering will not leave scars, because it will. But the story shouldn't just primarily be about our scars. I mean, Jesus still had scars from the crucifixion in his glorified body after the resurrection. There was proof that the bad thing had happened. But ultimately, the story is about the good thing that somehow was accomplished. God always works good things, even out of the worst that this fallen world has to offer. Now, I love how this principle is played out in the story of Peter and how it culminates in his experience of the resurrection of Jesus. I want to spend the rest of my time today with all the other things I've already said, hopefully in your mind, I want to spend the rest of my time talking about how that, that this principle is played out in the story of Peter and culminates again, as I said, in his experience of the resurrection of Jesus and when he met Jesus in Galilee. And uh, I want to talk about how that the resurrection offers all of us the opportunity to be defined by our very best. So I'm going to do this kind of, I guess, in the form of the story of Peter's relationship with Jesus. And uh, I encourage you, if you want to, you know, grab another cup of coffee or something and settle in. And um, let me spend a little bit of time uh, on this. Simon Peter um, is a marvelous example of raw humanity. And how Jesus can see the best in someone in spite of there being a lot of other things that, that could be and is and, or are noticed. So uh, Simon Peter's a study in contradictions. He clearly was somebody who wanted to do the right things but struggled often to do them. He wanted to say the right things, but he often struggled to say them. Uh, the Gospels paint a picture of a man who was impulsive, sometimes dangerously so. You know, jumping out of a boat to, to try to walk on water or, or on another occasion, jumping out of a boat to swim to shore because he saw Jesus standing on the shore. Um, he, he, the, the, the story of Simon Peter is, is, a, is a guy who was not just impulsive but brash in his impulsiveness. He has amazing experiences like being uh, led by Jesus uh, and uh, along with James and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus 
uh, appears with Elijah and Moses. And it's a silent and sacred moment, except Peter seems to not be able to stand the silence, and he breaks it by brashly saying, why don't we build three tabernacles here? It's as if he couldn't help himself sometimes. He was one of those kinds of guys. Um, Yet at the same time, he was tenderhearted and affectionate. Sometimes he was impulsive, brash, tenderhearted, and affectionate, all in the same story, all in the same breath. For instance, at the Last Supper, Jesus came to wash uh, Peter's feet, and and he said, um, uh, you will never wash my feet. To which Jesus said, if I can't wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. To which Peter then changed his mind quickly and said, well, then wash my hands and my feet also. Peter was gifted with deep spiritual insight. He's the one, as I'll talk about it more length here in a moment, who, who declared the, the revelation in a way it had never been declared before, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Uh, and, and yet, sometimes Peter would miss the deeper spiritual truth altogether. There's one time when uh, Jesus told a parable and, and Peter didn't get it. And of course, not being able to, to not say something, he said, would you please explain to us what you just said because I don't understand it. And the response of Jesus was to look at him and say, are you so dull? Uh, this is Peter. At times, he was self-sacrificing. At other times, self-seeking. He was hard-headed and soft-hearted, a study in contradictions. Part of what I love about Simon Peter is I think most of us can see ourselves in him in some way, in all of his humanity. I think we have to say, though, that regardless his character flaws, he was authentic. He was the real article. Um, The Gospel of Mark, as you may know, uh, was written by Mark, a protege of Peter's, uh, and it was an account of Peter's eyewitness testimony of the story of Jesus. This is authenticated in the, in the, in the, in the earliest uh, authentications of Scripture, that, that this was actually Peter's story uh, told through the pen of Mark. But one of the things that you, you, you learn about Peter as you read Mark's account of Peter's story is that, that, that Peter wasn't afraid to, to, to let everybody know the challenges, the struggles that he had. One of the things that actually is a great apologetic for the Gospels, and particularly Mark, is that, that, that the Gospel of Mark is too honest about, about Peter's failings for it to be inauthentic. Uh, somebody had to be real to tell these parts of their story. So he didn't avoid his three denials. He didn't avoid that he was sleeping in the garden while Jesus was praying. He didn't avoid telling that he cut off the, the high priest uh, servant's ear when they came to take Jesus in the garden and got rebuked by Jesus. He seems too embarrassed to use his name in the Gospel of Mark for that story, but other Gospel writers let it out that it in fact was Peter who did that. Somehow, though, Jesus saw the best in him. And regardless what Peter did, Jesus never changed his mind about him. The very first time he met Peter, uh, 
we're told that Jesus changed his name from Simon, which meant a reed, to Peter, which means a rock. John records this in his gospel. Jesus looked at him, John said, this is the first time he laid eyes on Simon Peter and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, an Aramaic term, which when translated is Peter. Again, Simon means reed, Peter means rock. Obviously, a reed is not all that strong. In fact, Jesus had spoken derisively of someone whose character was like a reed in another part of Scripture when he said that when people went to see John the Baptist, they did not see a reed that was shaken by the wind. He was saying that the the character of John the Baptist was strong. When Jesus looked at Simon Peter, he said, I don't see somebody who's, who's weak. I see somebody who's strong. And it seems that Jesus would at times go back and forth between calling him Simon and calling him Peter and sometimes calling him Simon Peter. It's, it, it, it's, it's not consistent like this all the way through the story of the gospel, but it's often that when, 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 when Peter would do something dumb, Jesus would call him Simon, the reed. When Peter would say something smart, Jesus would call him Peter, the rock. Uh, and sometimes it's clear that he saw both of those, those character uh, characteristics in this guy at the same time. But ultimately he was saying, you are a strong man and I know it. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. Think successful small businessman. Uh, a few weeks ago when we were in uh, Capernaum in Israel, we actually saw the house where archaeologists believe that, that Peter lived along with his wife and his mother-in-law. And this is where Jesus actually spent a lot of his time. He headquartered out of Capernaum, uh, ostensibly uh, uh, from Peter's house, while he ministered in the region of Galilee. Jesus, the first time he saw Peter, changed his name from Simon to Peter. The second time he saw him, he called him to leave his business as a fisherman and to become a fisher of men. Immediately, Peter left and began to follow Jesus. The apex of Peter's life with Jesus was when he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You know the story, but I'll read it to you nonetheless. Matthew's Gospel tells us, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, or as they say in Israel, Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, it's no mistake that Jesus said this in in front of a very famous um, uh, rock that, that forms the backdrop for Caesarea Philippi. I I just want to show you a 60-second video that will sum up why this is important. It's it's an Instagram post that I made while I was in Israel. Check it out uh, quickly, and, and then I'll talk to you again about why this is important. I'm in Caesarea Philippi. This is where Jesus asked his disciples the question, Who do people say I am? And Simon Peter said, You 
you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not prevail against it. Well, when they said that, they were probably looking at that huge rock behind me, and in this rock is carved a gate that was dedicated to the God of Hades, the God of death. Jesus was saying that the revelation of who he was was so great that it was going to be built on a rock more powerful than that, and the gates of death would not prevail against it. Because of who Jesus is and what he did, the church is built on a rock of revelation, and what Jesus did gives us power over death itself. It was relevant to people 2,000 years ago, and it's relevant to us today. So, when you saw that, did you notice the reeds in the water uh, moving in the water? And then you noticed, you couldn't help but notice the rock in the background. I mean, here is Simon Peter being given a revelation, not by flesh and blood, but by God. And, it, you know, so much comes together here. There are the reeds in the water, and, and then there is, is this rock behind him. And Jesus says, on the rock of this revelation, you, Peter, you, Peter, have been given. I am going to build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But, all of this unraveled the night of the crucifixion. All of this unraveled the night of the crucifixion. It's towards the end of the Last Supper. And Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus looked now at Simon and said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Hey, Peter, I'm going to meet you on the other side of this, and you have a mission to fulfill. But between now and then, you're going to go through something terrible. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Simon replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Well, it, it, it just got, it got worse from there. Because then they went to Gethsemane. And Jesus took his disciples, asked them to watch while, and to pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John a little while further and then left those three men, and then he went even, even further in the garden, and he began to pray the anguished prayer that's so familiar to all of us, that the cup would pass from him, but not his will, but the will of the Father, and he prayed with such anguish. And the fact is, we know what he prayed because Peter was close enough to hear the words. He reported them later to Mark. Close enough to hear the words, but yet we're told that his eyes got heavy and he fell asleep. And Jesus came back and he woke him and, Peter and, and John and James up and said, Can't you just pray with me for an hour? But they, they, their, their eyes were heavy. It's human. Uh, you can understand. They just had the Passover meal. They had the four glasses of wine. They were just human beings and they were sleepy and missed the moment. But, but, but 
two more times Jesus came back and Simon Peter just couldn't stay awake to pray with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Finally, Jesus in frustration says, get up, let's go. My betrayer comes and here comes Judas followed by this entourage by Caiaphas' house. And Peter now is awake, but probably not fully awake. He does a foolish thing. He takes his sword out. He swings it. He cuts off the ear of the, of the servant of the high priest. Jesus rebukes him. He said, enough of that. Or, or what the text actually says is, no more of that. And he takes the ear, puts it back on the, 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 the high priest servant and heals him. Well, then Jesus is taken to the palace of Caiaphas, but, but Peter's not with him. He's in the background trying to not be seen. After Jesus is taken into the palace and probably put down in this terrible dungeon we saw just a few weeks ago, uh, Peter then, he then goes into the courtyard and, and uh, someone starts a fire. It's, it becomes important to the story. It's a fire of coals, a charcoal fire. A servant girl saw him sitting there. She noticed him in the light of the fire. She recognized him and she said, you're with him, aren't you? You're with Jesus. And Peter said, I don't know him. And then a little while later, someone else asserted, a, a, a man this time, you're, you're with them, aren't you? And Peter said, I'm not with them. I don't know him. And then about an hour later, someone yet again looks at Simon Peter and says, I, I recognize that Galilean accent. You're with him, aren't you? And Mark's gospel tells us that Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. One gospel says that he cursed. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And when Jesus died on the cross, Peter was nowhere to be found. Maybe, in fact, we should just call him Simon. If that was the end of the story, that's what I would say. Or perhaps we should, in fact, build a memorial to his failure on the ruins of the palace of Caiaphas. Maybe we should... Put a sculpture there that shows him warming himself over a fire of coals and denying Jesus. Maybe we should name the place the Church of the Rooster. But wait, Easter is coming. The next time Peter is mentioned, three women went to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, an angel, sitting there dressed in a white robe, and they were frightened, but he said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And these women were afraid. 
But they ran from the tomb and they ran to the disciples and they told them, the tomb is empty. John's gospel tells us that when Peter heard the news that he and John began to run to the tomb, this is what John wrote, so Peter and the other disciple, John writing of himself, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. But he didn't go in. John didn't. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And the tomb was empty. We're told by both Luke and the Apostle Paul that Jesus appeared to Peter before he appeared to any of the other disciples. We don't know. There is no record exactly what happened between the two of them at that first appearance. But what we do know But what we do know is that Jesus then met Peter in Galilee just like he had promised he would. In the same breath, he told Peter that he would betray him. Here's how the story goes, and then I'll close our time today. Peter and the other disciples are back in Galilee. Peter decides to pick up the old business and go fishing. They go and they fish all night. They don't catch anything. As they're bringing the boat back to shore, they see a a man standing on, on, on the shore of Galilee. They don't recognize him. The man calls out and says, have you caught any fish? And And uh, they said no, shouting back evidently across a great expanse of water. And and this man said, we'll throw the net on the other side. And they do. And they caught so many fish that they couldn't even keep them all. And then John said to Peter, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Well, Peter grabs a coat that he'd thrown off while he was fishing. He wraps it around him. He dives into the water and he swims to the shore. The boat follows along behind them. John's Gospel tells us that when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. He cooks breakfast for Peter and all these other guys who have failed him over this fire of burning coals. Now I need to pause and I just need to tell you, there are only two times in the entire New Testament that this word is used to describe a fire of burning coals. It's used in this passage that surrounds the reconciliation of Peter with Jesus and it's used in that passage in the courtyard where Peter is warming his hands over that coal of fire, that that fire of coals, that charcoal fire. The only two times in all of Scripture it's ever mentioned, it's mentioned in the Gospel of John, Peter's failure, church of the rooster, and now in Galilee on the shore as Jesus cooks breakfast for these guys who had betrayed him in his moment of sorrow. And then Peter and Jesus took a walk on the shore. John followed along behind and recorded the words that were said. When they had finished eating, John wrote, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Arguably, he's talking about the fish that have just been caught. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus 
ask him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Hey, Peter, now that we've gotten on the other side of this, I just want to know, do you love me more than your business? Do you love me more than anything I'm going to call you again now to leave it all and to follow me. Now in the beginning he called Simon Peter to become a fisher of men. Now he's going to elevate his call. He's going to call him to be a shepherd to his sheep. Jesus had let it be known that being a shepherd, a good shepherd, meant that you would lay down your life for the sheep, that you would sacrifice your own interest for the sheep, that you would do anything for the sheep. This now was the new Simon Peter who's being elevated after failure to someone better than he had ever been, to a calling higher than he had ever had. This was the good that existed on the other side of the bad, the smell of the charcoal fire, I think you get it. Peter's senses remembering his failure. Three times he denied him. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Everything was good now. The fact is that Jesus met Peter on the other side of the pain and the suffering and the failure, see, we can't ever forget, especially as we go through the worst of times, whatever that may look like for each of us, whenever that may happen, including now, that Easter is coming. Even while we're suffering, Jesus is with us and goes ahead of us to meet us on the other side through the power of the resurrection. See, because of Easter, our present pain is not the whole story. Because of Easter, our failure is not the whole story. Because of Easter, a season of suffering is never the whole story. Don't expect that whatever suffering you're experiencing and witnessing in this moment will be your whole story. Don't build a memorial to the worst of times Jesus has gone before us and he will lead us to healing and wholeness and victory. And don't think for a moment that he's changed his mind about you. He sees the best in you. He sees the best for you. Whatever your weaknesses, whatever your doubts, whatever your struggles, whatever your failures, in all of your humanity, Jesus sees the best for you and he sees the best for your future. And please know, whatever your God-inspired dreams, God hasn't changed his mind. So don't you give up during a difficult season. Don't you dare give up during a difficult season. Don't you dare give up during a difficult season. Don't make that the final memory. God isn't giving up. Don't let temporary setbacks define your future. God had a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. He hasn't changed his mind about you. He's not surprised by what we're going through now. He's not surprised by what you're suffering through now. He already saw it and he already planned to meet you 
on the other side of whatever you're suffering and somehow to turn it to good and he wants to meet you now I encourage you to run to the resurrected Jesus just like Peter did remember Easter is coming and we know that because Easter already came